We are five days away from the start of the 2019 college football season. Tanner Hoops in studio with you. Thanks for being with me on this Monday afternoon. Got a lot to get to today. I'm going to play some Bill Walton audio for you. You're not going to want to miss that. A very memorable night at Angel Stadium on Friday. Plus, the first college football AP poll was released at noon today. I'm going to give you that in case you missed it earlier. we got a couple of guests we're going to hit up, talk some hockey, baseball on the ESPN-UP phone line in about 10 minutes. Then I've got a specialty segment to round out the back end of the show. The greatest football coach in the history of all 32 NFL franchises. Who is the greatest head coach of your team? I'm going to tell you later on during the show. But let's start with this. Friday night, Bill Walton gave us absolute gold. You know Bill Walton. One of the more eccentric personalities we have here at ESPN does a lot of basketball for us, primarily on the West Coast. Well, he tried his hand at baseball Friday night. He joined Jason Benetti and the Chicago White Sox broadcast team as they hit the road and took on the Los Angeles Angels. Bill Walton made his baseball broadcast debut. We've got audio courtesy of Chicago Sportsnet and Golick and Wingo here at ESPN. It was truly a sight to behold, and I could play a whole show's worth, maybe even a week's worth of Bill Walton audio from Friday night, but instead I'm going to give you an uninterrupted 90 seconds of some of the best moments. This is your first ever baseball game doing this job, right? This is a job? That's true. I understand that it starts and then you play, Yeah. but that the offense can't touch the ball, and that the defense goes first, and that there's no time limits. And you just go until somebody says, it's over. Sounds very much like a dead show. It's a timeless game. I love timelessness. You're timeless. Well, the I've, one been, thing I've, I've been dead for quite a few years. And we all may be by the end of the night. The music playing means we are actually out of time. What is the record for the most strikeouts in a single inning? Uh, currently three. To that point. No. Look at this defense. Trout. Garcia's not going to have a play. Oh, Mike my Trout gosh. That's Trout. It is. Swimming upstream, avoiding all the flies, and sending one ricocheting through the universe. And look at this crowd. Rockus is going to be one of the most successful franchises. Just packing them in here at the Big A. When they bring that high, hard one in, I stand in and lean back and then just bam. And it sails away out through the universe like a radio wave that goes past Saturn and Jupiter, Pluto, through the black hole, and into many other galaxies yet named. Let it be known that Jason Benetti was the perfect broadcast partner for him. He was the perfect guy to team Walton up with for his baseball debut. Although he did make one mistake. Did you catch that? A clerical error made by one of the sharpest baseball minds there is. Take a listen. What is the record for the most strikeouts in a single inning? Uh, currently three. That's actually not true. It's entirely possible to strike out more than three batters per inning. It's actually happened once this year. Luke Bard struck out four New York Yankees back on April 22nd. It's happened 88 times throughout Major League Baseball history. Four pitchers have accomplished the feat twice throughout their career, including Zach Grinke and Craig Kimbrell. If a catcher drops a third strike and the batter reaches first base safely, a strikeout is counted even though no out is recorded. So it's entirely possible to have more than three strikeouts per inning. It's happened 88 times throughout Major League Baseball history. But we'll give Benetti a break. He had a lot of other things on his mind, a lot of other things he was trying to control during that broadcast. 
Well, I tell you what, I've got a few guests that are going to be joining me here in a few minutes, so I want to get to this quickly and move right along. At noon today, the first AP rankings came out for the college football season. Keep in mind, college football officially kicks off five days from now when Miami takes on Florida in what officially is known as Week Zero. Let me give you the first top 25 rankings per the AP poll. And we'll start at number 25 with Stanford. Number 24, Nebraska. 23rd, Mike Leach and the Washington State Cougars. Number 22, Syracuse. Number 21, in the preseason top 25 for the first time in 41 years, Iowa State. Number 20, Iowa. And I'm from Iowa, so this is interesting to me. I don't know about you, but this is the first time in history both Iowa and Iowa State have been ranked in the top 25 in the preseason poll. 19th, the Wisconsin Badgers. 18th, Sparty. Number 17, as they say, the 2017 national champions, UCF. 16th, Auburn. Moving to the top 15, Penn State. 14th, Utah. Number 13, Washington. 12th, Texas A&M. Number 11, Oregon. Number 10, Texas. Number 9, Notre Dame. 8th, Florida. 7th, Michigan. 6th, LSU. And now we go to the top 5. Coming in at number 5, the Ohio State Buckeyes. I don't know how they're coming on that trademark, but they are ranked fifth to start the college football season. Number four, Oklahoma. Number three, Georgia. Number two, Alabama. And number one, Clemson. And it sails away out through the universe like a radio wave that goes past Saturn and Jupiter, Pluto, through the black hole, and into many other galaxies yet named. Bam! Bam indeed, as Clemson's still at the top, and right now they're the top dogs in the college football world until someone says otherwise. Some college football news and notes. Ohio State has officially named Justin Fields as their starting quarterback for week one. Excuse me, the Ohio State has named Justin Fields their starting quarterback for the season opener. Coming up in a little less than two weeks. To the NFL side of things, Adam Gay says the New York Jets will not play Le'Veon Bell in the preseason. And a new report from ESPN's NFL insider Adam Schefter says the Redskins are leaning towards starting Case Keenum over Dwayne Haskins in week one as it stands right now. Colt McCoy is expected to miss two to three weeks. So right now, Case Keenum has the edge over Dwayne Haskins in the Washington Redskins starting quarterback battle. I tell you what, before we go to break, Antonio Brown has returned to Oakland Raiders camp. He left yesterday out of apparent anger at the NFL. He tweeted out a not-safe-for-work tweet Saturday night after the NFL rejected his plea to use one of his Scut Air Advantage helmets that he found that was manufactured in 2014. Brown apparently took his frustration out on the Raiders yesterday and left camp. General Manager Mike Mayock said it is time to be all-in or all-out. They are excited about the future of this team and they want A.B. to be a part of it only if he is going to contribute. The problem is, how do you enforce that if you're Oakland? You've got a guy that's a head case. I'm not going to say he's a clubhouse cancer or anything like that. I don't like that term. But if you're the Raiders and you say he's got to be all in or all out, what does that mean? And how do you enforce that? This is a future Hall of Famer. If he didn't show up today, Oakland would just keep pushing the timetable back. Thankfully for them, Antonio Brown did not test their bluff. He is back at camp today, and as of right now, all is well with Oakland. But you know it's going to be a chin strap here in a couple of months. It's going to be a mouthpiece. It's going to be the shoulder pads. 
Problems aren't over for Oakland. Just because he's back today doesn't mean they're out of the woods by any stretch. I tell you what, I've got a couple of guests to get to. Coming up, we're going to talk hockey and the newest Northern Michigan alum to make the professional ranks with head coach Grant Petoni. That is coming up next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along as always. Well, last week, former Northern Michigan hockey defenseman Ryan Black signed his first professional contract. He is headed to France to begin professional hockey in Europe's Liga Manu with the Brionson Red Devils. Ryan is a busy guy. Season starts next month. He's already over there, not able to get a hold of him. I have communicated with him through email the last couple of days and wish him all the best. But we're joined by somebody who helped him get where he is, and that is Northern Michigan head coach Grant Petolny. Coach, appreciate you taking the time as always. Tell me about Ryan as a player. Did you have any influence on this decision? Did you have any interaction with him since you found out? Yeah, no, Ryan was, uh, again, he was no different than anybody else when um, I got an opportunity to coach the team. You just don't know any of the players. And uh, you, you come in and everybody kind of gets a fresh start. Um, I think Ryan had a, um, a couple of years where maybe things hadn't gone as well as he would have hoped. And, uh, you know, the, the fresh start was probably good for him. Uh, and, and over, you know, probably the two years that I, that I got to spend with him, um, obviously the first thing that, that, that pops out is he's an elite skater. He can really skate. Um, and, you know, that gets him out of trouble um, lots of times. And, and when you can skate like that, uh, you can find a way to, to make a play when there's not much room to, to be able to get out of some danger. So, that's kind of the first thing that, uh, that, that stuck out with Ryan. And, uh, you know, over the course of coaching him, you know, sometimes guys that are good skaters, as much as they can get you out of trouble, sometimes you can skate yourself into trouble. And, uh, you know, that was just the progression for Ryan of, of knowing, you know, when to move the puck and when, when to make sure you have it on your forehand. And, um, you know, probably about Thanksgiving of, of that first year, he became a very, very important player for us. And, uh, he was an everyday guy, um, you know, was a, was a penalty killer. And, and then you start to, to realize how tough of a kid he is. Uh, you know, I don't say this lightly. I think he's the toughest kid I've ever coached. Um, you know, from playing with broken ribs to, uh, you know, there, there was a time we were doing a drill and, um, it was a, it was kind of a one-on-one battle. This is the one memory I'll always have in Ryan. And, uh, we were over at Lakeview because we were playing on an NHL sheet that week. And, uh, you know, it was a cold day. It's cold in the rink. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a kind of a battle day and, and there's a, a a one-on-one going in the corner, and he, he kind of stopped on the drill. And um, I was like, "Boy, that's uh, that's not like Ryan." Um, so I kind of looked at him. And I said, "You okay?" He's like, "Yep, yeah, I'm fine." Uh, he goes, "He goes throw a new puck in." So I throw a new puck in, and he, he completes the drill and uh, drills over. He skates over to Megan, the trainer. And his uh, his pinky is uh, dislocated and facing. If it's supposed to be facing north, it's facing west, and. Uh, he, the, 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 just the, the level of, of pain that, that, that he could, that he could handle. He told me, um, on certain days, he said, you know, my favorite part of the day is, my favorite part of the week is game day, uh, because that's the, that's the only day my hand doesn't hurt because I can, uh, I can take an injection for it. Um, you know, those are, those are the memories I'll remember from Ryan. And, and he was a true competitor. Um, he's what you want in the program. He, he was a good person. He's a good student. Uh, he always had a smile on his face. So I, I couldn't be happier for him. He was consistent for you. He played 141 games at Northern. He played all but one his senior season. Tell me about his ability as a depth guy and what he can bring to the table over in Europe. Well, I, I think number one, 
it's a great decision for him because, um, you know, with the way he can skate and, and playing on our Olympic ice sheet, um, you know, the, the leagues in Europe play on Olympic ice. So um, Ryan's ability to skate will, will immediately give him uh, a leg up on, on most of the competition over there. And, and the other side of that is he's, he's acclimated to playing on a big rink and, and the angles are different. And some of those things. So that number one is is, um, is going to give him a leg up. But but number two, uh, he's versatile. I mean, I, I used him in every situation: uh, power play, penalty kill, four on four, five on five. Um, you know, he can kind of play anywhere you want. And when you start talking about a depth player, if you have a guy that um, that you could put on the rink and, and know that you know nothing bad is going to happen, uh, as simple as that sounds, there's so much value in, in that. And, and Ryan did that, but then he could also bring some offense. You know, the, I think the one season he had 20 assists. And, um, so, so he, he can kind of, he's kind of a jack of all trades. He can, he can kind of fit anywhere. And when you get to pro hockey, the, the more places you can play, uh, the more valuable you are. And, and no different than college hockey. And that's why he was so valuable to us. You talk about Ryan's offensive ability. He finishes with two goals and 33 assists in his Northern career. Was that something that he developed over time while you were coaching him? Or is that something he brought to the table immediately? Yeah, you know what I, I think he had. I think he had that ability. I think sometimes, um, you know, what, what happens is you end up um, maybe getting caught behind a couple guys. I mean, Phil Ballou is an All-American. Um, Jordan Klimek was uh, was a guy the first year that that was a senior that was great on the power play. And, um, you know, and sometimes that ends up kind of you know Tony Bretzman last year. So you're kind of sometimes you know Ryan could have maybe generated a little even more offense um, than, than he had than he than he did, but. Some of that comes down to opportunity. You know, I, I do believe had had he been given um, you know a little more opportunity in the power play, had we not had those type of elite offensive players, um, you know, he would have generated more. And I do think he can he can be a guy in professional hockey because you know sometimes running the power play, people forget it's um, you got to be able to move the blue line and walk the line, and you got to be mobile up there and available to everybody. You're kind of the quarterback, and you got to get from wall to wall. And, um, being able to skate is, is uh, a big advantage for, for that defenseman, and Ryan can definitely do that. What aspects of the game fundamentally did you see Ryan grow and improve on the most during your time coaching him? You know, I, I think that the biggest thing, and I talked a little bit about it in the, in the first part of the interview, is, um, you know, sometimes it's just hitting singles. And, you know, and, and that's, um, you know, for guys that, you know, have been offensive players, he was an offensive player in high school, offensive player in junior. Um, you know, I, I think no different than any off, elite offensive player when they get to college hockey. Um, you have to make sure that, you know, you sometimes singles, and you keep hitting singles in the end of the day, you're, you're three for four. Um, you know, that might be more valuable than going one for four with a home run. And, uh, you know, that was probably the, the biggest transition in Ryan's game is, is just allowing the game to come to him and taking what's there. Grant Petoni is the head hockey coach at Northern Michigan. He has sent on yet another player to the professional ranks as Ryan Black is signing with Brion Sohn in France. Coach, appreciate the time as always. Congrats again, and we'll be talking again soon. Thanks a lot, Tanner. Let's stick to the phone line, but let's transition over to baseball. I'm joined by Josh Reband, manager of the Northwoods League champion Traverse City Pittsbitters. Coach, congrats first and foremost accomplishing the feat this weekend. Has it set in yet? Uh, it has, it has. Just, um, been able to spend some time with family and friends and uh, just been able to just kind of let it soak in and um, it's been great. I've gotten a, it, you feel like it's a lot bigger of a deal when uh, people are texting you or calling you or that kind of thing. So it's been really cool and I'm excited for the guys too and what they've been able to accomplish. I know a lot of people have reached out to them individually as well and 
Uh, pretty pretty special summer for all of us. Well, Coach, let's talk about your run to the championship, starting with the Madison game. You guys won the Great Lakes Championship with that victory. Madison's always a loaded team. You know they're always going to be right there in the thick of things in August. Tell me about that matchup and how you guys came away with a win. Yeah, the matchup was uh, was obviously a good one. Um, fortunately, we were able to get ahead early um, and, and chase their starter out of there. And yeah, that kind of ended up being unfortunate though because we didn't get any runs off their bullpen for the rest of the game. Uh, but Jake Wilson's throw in the uh, in the eighth inning to nail down the runner at the plate, uh, which would have been the tying run, uh, was, was obviously a, a momentum shifter for us to keep that momentum on our side. And um, you know, we just we had great fan support too. Uh, the whole week and uh, the Madison games in this championship was a uh, it was very well played game by both teams. Unfortunately, we ended up on the winning side of it. Yeah, you got to host the Northwoods championship game. You had Eau Claire coming to town. Before we get into the game recap, how important was it to be able to host that game in Traverse City? How big was that crowd? It was unbelievable having forty six hundred plus there for us and um, being able to sleep in our own beds the night before and being able to. Do, uh, kind of have a little bit of a team workout uh, Thursday afternoon, which ended up being an off day for us as Eau Claire traveled on their way uh, to come play. Having that, having the home field advantage, the home crowd, they were so loud and electric. It was a really fun atmosphere, and I know that obviously uh, fed into our guys' energy. Where does that atmosphere compare to others that you've been a part of? Um, honestly, I, I told my wife, I said, I think that's probably the best baseball atmosphere I've ever been a part of in my life. Um, we've, I've been a part of games where there's been more crowd, uh, more people in the stands. Um, but in terms of the electric atmosphere and the noise and, um, you know, kids banging on the outfield wall out on the berm and, um, it was just, it was a really cool atmosphere. I, I, I think it's probably the top top baseball atmosphere i've ever been a part of on the field um off the field i've i've been able to witness some atmospheres at major league games but in terms of uh games i've been uh fortunate enough to be a part of i think that that was the top well, let's talk about the game itself you had eau claire come to town tell me about that matchup a 3-2 walk-off win for your guys yeah we knew it was going to be a good matchup they played a lot of the same type of baseball that we do um, a lot of stolen bases uh, a lot of bunting and uh, we knew it was a pretty pretty similar matchup, and uh, both pitch starting pitchers were were quality arms, and uh, their guy really shut us down. He took us out, uh, Alvarado uh, from Illinois Springfield. He he took us out of our game. Uh, we weren't able to run much. We weren't able to uh, to do much situational stuff with the bat just because he limited base runners and um, was quick to the plate. So it took us out of our game plan, and then uh, in the fifth inning we were able to score one on a Andrew Morrow sack fly to right field and then uh, the bottom of the ninth inning uh, when they when they watched the, uh, the the leadoff guy and the crowd got into it and I, I, I had a pretty good feeling we we're going to have a chance to come back and then fortunately enough we were so um, the way it finished with the walk-off win we couldn't have writ, writ, written a better script for it. At any point, did you have a couple of guys that needed to pick up the rest of the dugout, maybe feeling discouraged you weren't getting Alvarado, or was it a thing where your team felt confident all the way through? No, they. Uh, they. I, if if I said that they weren't confident, I'd be lying. They they just kept saying it's just a matter of time. It's a matter of time, and we've talked about in our dugout and locker room all year that winter, winners will, all, will always find a way. Um, and the guys really believed that. They bought into that. They knew that we'd find a way. 
And um, even going into the ninth inning, it you know it didn't seem like a pressure-filled dugout as I was heading out to the third base coaching box. Um, they were just like, hey, just another day. Let's just walk it off again for the home crowd like we've done before. So um, obviously there's you know a little bit of tense and anxiety just because you don't know if it's going to happen, but the, uh, but the guys definitely believed it would. Well, Josh, tell me about your reaction post-game in the huddle. How did you address the guys after you won the title? Yeah, um, I, I just told them how proud of them I was. Um, the amount of work that they put into this summer was absolutely incredible. Um, and I also shared with them the story I, before the summer started, uh, months before, I had just been praying that um, that God would do something special in Traverse City this summer. And uh, that phrase ended up popping up a couple times, uh, just a, a couple words, something special. And uh, that's when I kind of knew God had his hand on this summer. And, um, you know, I, I feel so blessed to be a part of it, and I'm thankful for uh, to my savior for the, for the opportunity that I had to uh, to be able to coach his team and got to give credit to to the Lord. Um, so I kind of just shared that story with them um, and then just kind of told them how proud of them I was. And like I said, the amount of work that they put in over the course of the summer and staying committed. We had 28 guys on the on the final day of the summer, and um, and 24 of those 28 guys were a part of the original plans for the team. So. Um, I think that speaks volumes to the commitment and loyalty. A lot of teams will go through 55, 65 players over the course of the summer, and we ended up only having 41 players come through Traverse City. So um, it was just an unbelievable experience for everybody, and uh, I, I know it's something they can feel proud of going back to their colleges. Well, Josh, I know it's got to be hard to top the championship, but any favorite moment this year that was something special for you, you're always going to cherish? Yeah, outside of the uh, outside of the championship game, uh, one of the games that will stick out is the Fourth of July game um, ho- when we hosted the Lakeshore Chinooks and we went into extra innings. And um, Kevin Hahn, who actually pitched, pitched the last six innings of the championship game, he was on the mound for that Fourth of July game. And at the time, that was our biggest crowd of the year, and um, with fireworks after the game and those kinds of things. And Hahn just made some incredible plays. Um, on the mound defensively covering some bunts. And then uh, Chris Faust from Grand Valley State uh, hit, I think it was a 96 or 97-mile-hour fastball through the right side in extra innings uh, that scored that winning run for a walk-off. And I just thought that was just such a special moment. I think that was kind of one of those um, momentum shifters. Not that we needed We were kind of on a winning streak at that point, but it was one of those things that um, it kind of validated that the guys really believed that they were never out of the fight. Well, now that the season's over, what's next for you? Uh, for, well, I just going back home, uh, getting packed up here today, and then um, my plans are to uh, just to make some money in the off season and try and figure things out, um, and just spend some time, more time with family this year. Uh, I, I decided to not go back to Davenport University, which is where I've been for the last three years. Uh, just try and take some time to take a step back, make a little bit more money financially. Um, and then try and prepare for, for next summer. So um, lots to look forward to. Um, I'm going to be able to take a couple trips with my wife um, over the next few months. We're going to go to Boston see one of my high school buddies who plays for the Yankees. We're going to be able to see him play um, and then just kind of do a couple other small trips here and there just to be able to spend some more time together. Josh Reban is the manager of the Northwoods League champion Traverse City Pittsbitters. He joins us on the ESPN-UP phone line. Josh, I appreciate you taking the time as always. Congrats again on your title. All the best going forward. 
Hey, thanks so much, Tanner. Appreciate your guys' coverage of our team, and uh, hopefully we can keep the word out for next summer. Let's take a time out when we come back. Who is the greatest coach in the history of your NFL franchise? We'll answer it next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along as always. Here's your Sports Center update. Seattle Seahawks wide receiver D.K. Metcalf will undergo knee surgery per head coach Pete Carroll. Metcalf was injured last week and did not suit up for last night's preseason game against the Vikings. The team is optimistic that the 64th overall draft pick will be ready for the season opener September 8th against Cincinnati. Friday night, Minnesota Twins outfielder Max Kepler set a new single-season home run record for European-born MLB players. Kepler, who was born in Berlin, homered off of Mike Miner, his 33rd long ball of the year. That breaks the previous record set by Bobby Thompson in 1951. By the way, Thompson's record-setting long ball was the shot heard round the world off of Ralph Branca. And finally... Queen Elizabeth is licensed to drive an ambulance. When she was 16 years old, Her Majesty joined the British Employment Agency, where she became efficient in auto engineering, which included learning how to operate an ambulance. That is your Sports Center update. Tanner Hoops with you once again. Glad that you're here with me on this Monday afternoon. Well, I tell you what, this is what I've been busy working on this weekend. I put together a list of my 32 best head coaches for every NFL franchise. And, of course, I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to give you the reasoning for it. I'm going to give you half of them now, half of them when we come back from break. So let's jump right into it because this is going to take a while. It's going to take us up to the end of the hour. So let's jump right into it. And we're going to start with a toughie. Now, this one was tough. It tested my brain. I reached out for help. But I tell you what, the Chicago Bears was one of the toughest ones I had to answer. I wanted to go so bad with Mike Ditka. Iron Mike went 106 and 62 in 11 seasons with Chicago. He coached them to their only Super Bowl victory while earning coach of the year twice. He won a Super Bowl as a player, head coach, and assistant coach. But man, no matter what the era was, you cannot deny the legacy of Papa Bear, George Hallis, and what he did for Chicago. We are celebrating 100 years of NFL football this year, largely because of what George Hallis did. Him and Curly Lambeau on the other side. That's why those two teams are playing Thursday night football to kick off the season. George Hallis and what he did with Chicago cannot be underestimated. He won 324 games and six NFL championships in the pre-Super Bowl era while creating the Bears dynasty and molding them into what they are. As much as I like Iron Mike, I think he's deserving, but I'm going to give it to Papa Bear. George Hallis is my representative for best coach in Chicago Bears history. The Cincinnati Bengals. I tell you what, with what he's done lately, people forget Marvin Lewis had some really good days as head coach of the Bengals. And when you look at the other coaches they've had, there's really not a lot of competition. Marvin Lewis is the best coach in the history of the Bengals. Cincinnati had won 52 games from 1984 to 2002 before Lewis took over. Lewis went on to win 131 games, by far the most in franchise history. He also won NFL Coach of the Year in 2009, and he's been to the postseason seven times. Well, the knock against him is going to be that he never won a postseason game with the Bengals. He went 0-7, yet there's really nobody else who could take the title away from him. Really, the closest competition he would have is Forrest Gregg, and he's still not that close. Marvin Lewis, despite the way it ended, is still the best coach the Bengals have ever had. The Buffalo Bills. I'm going with Mark Levy. Got to go with Mark Levy. He coached Buffalo from 1986 to 1997. They were the dynasty of the AFC East at the time. Not New England. 
Levy was 112 and 70 in 12 seasons with Buffalo. That is a franchise record. Plus, he was good in the postseason. He has an 11 and 8 record in the playoffs. He coached Buffalo in 19 of their 30 playoff games in team history, and he won four consecutive AFC titles in the early 90s. However, never won the Super Bowl. Kept getting there every year but he would never be able to win it. Nonetheless, nobody else is able to compete with the resume that he put together as head coach of the Bills. What's more, he was one of the most innovative coaches well ahead of his time. Back in the 90s, he introduced the K-Gun no-huddle offense. Far ahead of his time, it was unheard of in the 90s, but it worked wonders, and it made Buffalo into one of the powers of the time. Mark Levy is the best head coach in Bills history. The Denver Broncos, a few guys that were up for consideration here. I tell you what, I went with Mike Shanahan. He beat out everybody else head-to-head. Dan Reeves, I gave him strong consideration. He won 110 games with Denver. Shanahan won 138 games while coaching just two seasons more. Gary Kubiak won a Super Bowl, but Shanahan won two. Shanahan throughout all of NFL history is one of only six coaches to win back-to-back Super Bowls. He won 46 games between 1996 and 1998. That is an NFL record. And he's won the most playoff games over the course of a two-year span in NFL history. He went on to win the Super Bowl both years. That, coupled with his offensive intuity, that is why I'm giving Mike Shanahan the title of best coach in Denver Broncos history. The Cleveland Browns. I tell you what, if they name the team after a guy... Probably means he's doing something right as a head coach. Probably means he's going to be the representative. That's why Paul Brown is the greatest head coach in Cleveland Browns history. He founded both Ohio teams in the NFL, both the Bengals and the Browns, but he's known more for his time in Cleveland. He is Cleveland's longest tenured head coach. He went 17 years, and he won 158 games during that time. 48 losses, 8 ties at the helm. Won 4 AAFC titles and 3 NFL championships. Paul Brown is the Browns' best coach in team history. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I'm going with Tony Dungy for this one. The Bucks had just three winning seasons since their inception in 1976 until Dungy's hiring 20 years later. Dungy went 6-10 and as a rookie head coach, but then he compiled five straight winning seasons. He finished with a record of 54-42 and as the Buccaneers head coach, but then they decided to replace him with John Gruden. Now, Gruden did win Tampa Bay's only Super Bowl, but he did so largely with the roster that Tony Dungy built, and he went on to have losing seasons the next three years after that. I'm not saying that to discredit Gruden, but I'm saying that is the reason why I'm picking Dungy over Gruden as the best head coach in Bucks history. The Arizona Cardinals. Here's another really tough one. It came down to two guys for me. Dan Coryell from when the team was still in St. Louis. Man, he was the front runner for a while. But then the more I read over Bruce Arians' stats, the more I liked Bruce Arians. Both coached the same amount of years, and they put up similar numbers. Coryell went 42-27-1 with two playoff berths. Arians was 49-30-1 with two playoff berths. They are separated by just 10 winning percentage points, but I'm going to give Arians the edge for winning a single postseason game, something Coryell could never do. Coryell was an offensive master. Arians is a quarterback whisperer. But Coryell went 0-2 in the postseason. Arians went 1-2 and and did reach the Super Bowl. Maybe a little bit more? Coryell did win NFL Coach of the Year in 1974. Arians won Coach of the Year twice, 2012 and 2014. It's not much, but I'm still going to give the edge to Arians just ahead of Dan Coryell. The Los Angeles Chargers. Another tough one to pick, and this is a big reason why. There are no head coaches in Chargers history with a winning record in the playoffs. 
Dan Coriel again. He went 69 and 56 with the Chargers, but he had three losing seasons and he could never get beyond the AFC Championship game. Experts believe that is why Coriel has not been inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame. However, in 2010, he was inducted into the Pro Football Researchers Association Hall of Very Good. I'm not kidding. That's a real thing. The Pro Football Researchers Association Hall of Very Good. So taking all that into consideration, I'm going to give the honor of best head coach in Chargers history to Sid Gilman, the first ever head coach in team history. He had just one losing season with the Chargers, and he coached the team to a victory in the 1963 AFL Championship over the Boston Patriots. Here's another tough one. The Kansas City Chiefs. You know what? They had some deserving guys here between Mark Levy, Dick Vermeil, Marty Schottenheimer. Andy Reid has the best winning percentage right now at 677. If he wins a Super Bowl with Kansas City, he probably will be the greatest coach they've ever had. But for now, I'm going to give the honor to Hank Stram. He went 124-76-10 with two titles, including a Super Bowl victory, Super Bowl four over the Minnesota Vikings. Stram was another innovator. He was the inventor of the moving pocket and the double tight end set, well ahead of his time in the 1960s. Hank Stram, as of now, Andy Reid might put him on notice, but as of now, Stram is the greatest head coach in Chiefs history. How about this? We've got our first repeat nominee, the Indianapolis Colts, Tony Dungy. Dungy is the greatest head coach in the history of two NFL franchises. His career record with Indianapolis is 85-27. and 27. He also has a Super Bowl ring after winning Super Bowl 41. With that, he became the first African-American coach to win a Super Bowl. He left Tampa Bay with the reputation of a good regular season coach, but he struggled in the playoffs. He was able to erase that reputation in Indianapolis. He left Tampa Bay. He ended up in Indy, where he joined up with quarterback Peyton Manning and offensive coordinator Tom Moore. Dungy had so much trust in those two, he let them design the offense, and he was essentially the defensive coordinator. He constructed one of the most fearsome defenses of the era, and the Colts were a dynasty for a long time under Dungy. Here's another tough one. The Dallas Cowboys, one of the most storied franchises in America. America's team. Lots of good choices here. Did you know the Cowboys only have one coach in team history who has a career losing record? Dave Campo. He's also the only coach who failed to post a winning season during his time at the Cowboys. For me, it came down to Tom Landry and Jimmy Johnson. But I tell you what, I'm going to give the edge to Landry. He compiled 250 wins, 162 losses, and six ties in 29 seasons, which included two Super Bowl championships, five NFC championships, 20 career playoff wins, 13 divisional titles, 18 playoff berths, and he was named NFL Coach of the Year four times. He beat Johnson in every statistical category in that sense. However, Johnson only coached the team for five years. So you could say that Johnson won as many Super Bowls as Landry while coaching 24 fewer seasons. However, I do believe Landry was a better coach overall. He had a great scouting system underneath him, which included Gil Brandt, who was just inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame. Johnson later went on to coach the Dolphins and didn't have nearly the same success that he did in Dallas. I'm going to base my tiebreaker on that, that Landry was a consistent winner all throughout his career. Johnson had some good teams. But I'm going to give the edge slightly to Landry. Speaking of the Dolphins, their best head coach all time, not even close, it's Don Shula. And I tell you what, you hear all the talk about NBA teams getting charged with tampering. The Miami Dolphins were actually charged with tampering when they took Shula from the Indianapolis Colts. They had to give up a first round draft pick for him back in 1970, but it was well worth it. 
In his 26 years with the Dolphins, Shula won 257 games, lost 133, and tied twice. His Dolphins had 16 playoff appearances and won two Super Bowls. Plus, in 1972, he coached the Dolphins to an unbeaten season. Still the only unbeaten year in NFL history. Not even close when you look at the guys the Dolphins have tried to succeed him with. Dave Wanstad, the aforementioned Jimmy Johnson, Adam Gase, Joe Philbin, Todd Bowles. And now they're trying their hand with Brian Flores. The Philadelphia Eagles. Here's a really tough one. Can I say a guy who hasn't coached three full seasons be better than Andy Reid or Dick Vermeil? Because I'm going to give it to Doug Peterson. It took Peterson just one season to win the franchise's first Super Bowl and the franchise's first championship since 1949, and he did it with a backup quarterback. Reid has the franchise record with 130 wins, plus 10 playoff wins during his 13-year tenure with Philly. But Peterson winning that Super Bowl with a backup quarterback in just one year? Bringing the title to Philly for the first time in almost 70 years? That's just too much for me to underestimate. I know it's a small sample size, but Peterson already has five playoff wins in two years. Andy Reid had ten wins in 13 years. He is well on his way to catching Andy Reid in that category. I believe he's already done enough that he is the best coach the Eagles have ever had. The Atlanta Falcons, another toughie. The best overall coach that the Falcons have ever had is Dan Reeves, but it's not because of his time with the Falcons. He went 49-59-1 and in seven seasons with Atlanta. That's why I can't say that he's the best coach in Falcons history. He's the best coach to ever coach the Falcons, but it's not because of his time with Atlanta, if that makes sense. However, when Reeves had a good Falcons team, he had a really good Falcons team. They went 3-2 and two in two postseason berths, plus a trip to the Super Bowl. However, they couldn't pull it out. So that leaves it up to either Mike Smith or Dan Quinn. Smith was 66-46 and 46 in seven years with Atlanta. Dan Quinn has been with Atlanta for four years. He's on pace to match those numbers almost perfectly. The tiebreaker, though, is going to be their postseason success, or in Smith's case, the lack of it. Smith was 1-4 in the playoffs, despite getting there twice as often as Quinn has so far. Quinn, meanwhile, is 3-2 and two with a Super Bowl appearance in two playoff appearances. He should have won the Super Bowl. That would seal the deal as being the greatest coach in Falcons history. But you never know. Falcons are set for a really good year this year. I don't know if they're Super Bowl contenders. But Dan Quinn, to me, is the most impressive guy that the Falcons have ever had at the helm. Couple more here before we hit the break. The San Francisco 49ers, this was easy. Bill Walsh brought in his West Coast offense from Stanford, and it was an immediate success. He won two championships, and he produced a stack coaching tree that includes George Seifert, Mike Holmgren, and Dennis Green. Bill Walsh is unquestionably the best head coach that the 49ers have ever had. Last one before we hit the break. We're hitting the halfway point in my list. The New York Giants. Tough choice between three deserving candidates, at least three guys who deserve consideration. Steve Owen, Tom Coughlin, and Bill Parcells. I'm going to go with Parcells because of the way he matches up with the other two candidates. Parcells has the best winning percentage among the three, and he's tied with Coughlin for the best playoff record. Owen was just 2-8 and eight in the postseason. That's what knocks him out for me. Coughlin had the worst winning percentage of the three, which means Parcells is the guy that I go with. He went 79-44-1, 8-3 in the playoffs with two Super Bowl championships. Parcells is the man for me. I tell you what, we have hit the halfway point, and we've hit our next break. Let's take it now. I'll give you the back half of my list next on ESPN-UP.
Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. If you missed any part of the show today, you can check it out on demand. You can go to our website to do so or get our free mobile app from the Apple iStore or Google Play. Just look up ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you Monday afternoon. Glad to have you along as always. We continue on with the back half of our list, the final 16 teams, as we try to figure out the greatest head coach in the history of all 32 NFL franchises. It is time for the Jacksonville Jaguars. My selection for them is Mr. Tom Coughlin. He is a two-time Super Bowl champion, although those rings came with the New York Giants. He coached the Jaguars from their inaugural 1995 season until 2002. He is the only one of the six men who have ever coached the Jaguars to finish with a winning record. They started 4-12 and in his first season, but then Jacksonville went on to the postseason four consecutive years, including a visit to the 1999 AFC Championship game. Tom Coughlin is far and away the most successful head coach in Jaguar history. Here is a toughie, the New York Jets. If you want to challenge today, if you're looking to test your brain, try to figure out who the best coach in New York Jets history is. Bill Belichick was named head coach of the Jets twice, but he never coached a game. That could have made it pretty easy. How about this, though? Only one coach in team history who's coached more than one season has finished with a winning record. Only one coach who's coached multiple seasons has a winning record at the helm of the New York Jets. That was Bill Parcells. He went 29-19 and in three seasons with New York. That included a postseason berth, but it was nowhere near as impressive as what he's done elsewhere in his career. So I reluctantly chose Webb Eubank as my selection as greatest coach in the history of the New York Jets. He went 71-77 and in 11 seasons with New York. Now, I give him this distinction because he is a Hall of Famer. His 71 wins are the most in team history, and he coached the team to their only Super Bowl victory, Super Bowl III with Joe Namath. Reluctantly, I'm going to give Webb Eubank, even though he had a losing record for his career, he is the greatest coach in Jets history. The Detroit Lions. It was a pretty easy one. Buddy Parker was the Lions' greatest coach in history. He went 47-23-2 as head coach of the Lions from 1951 to 1956. He led Detroit to consecutive championships in 1952 and 1953, and he earned NFL Coach of the Year honors in 1956. Now, aside from his accomplishments, this is maybe the biggest reason why he is the Lions' greatest coach of all time, because his legacy still lives on today. It was him and Lions quarterback Bobby Lane that made the two-minute offense famous. That legacy still living on today he is far and away the best Lions coach in franchise history the Green Bay Packers this was a difficult one even though there were two that were at the forefront rather than a whole group of guys two really accomplished guys rather than a group of mediocre guys the Packers man they've been good to you Packer fans for a long time you have arguably two of the top three coaches in NFL history between Vince Lombardi and Curly Lambeau I tell you what, I'm going to give the edge to the guy they named the Super Bowl trophy after. Lambeau won 209 games with the Packers from 1921 to 1949. He also won six championships during that time. However, Lombardi won five titles, including the first two Super Bowls, and his other three titles came before the Super Bowl was ever a thing, 1961, 62, and 65. Tell you what, I could have gone either way and I wouldn't have been wrong. The guy the Packers named the stadium after or the guy that the NFL named the trophy after I'm going to go with Lombardi. I'm going to give him the slight edge over Lambeau. The Carolina Panthers. Here's another team whose current coach is the best they've ever had. 
Got to remember, they are a relatively young franchise. They have only had four head coaches in their history. Two of them were deserving. Two of them have winning records. Two of them have taken them to a Super Bowl. Ron Rivera is one of them. Rivera needs just three wins a season to become the Panthers' all-time career wins leader. His record is 71-56. and 56. His opponent, at least in my book, is John Fox, who went 73-71 and 71 with Carolina. Now, Rivera and Fox both have brought their teams to the Super Bowl, but Rivera has accumulated more divisional titles, more playoff berths, and more Coach of the Year awards, and he's accomplished it in less time than Fox did. That's why I'm giving Rivera the edge as best head coach in Panther history. The New England Patriots, oh man, a lot of thought went into this one. Raymond Berry and Bill Parcells each took the Patriots to the Super Bowl, but they both got throttled. Then at the turn of the century, Bill Belichick came along. And following his first season at the helm in New England in 2001, where they went 5-11, and New England has not known how to lose. They haven't had a losing season since then, and they've won six Super Bowl titles. Think about that. Belichick has been at the helm since 2000. 2001 was the Patriots' only losing season during that time. Belichick's second season, he led the Pats to a Super Bowl title with a relatively unknown backup quarterback. A sixth-round pick out of Michigan, a guy who stepped in for an injured Drew Bledsoe, Mr. Tom Brady. Not only has Belichick put up winning seasons every year since 2001, he's won 10 or more games every year but one. He went 9-7 and seven in 2003. How amazing is that? Every year since 2004, Belichick has won 10 games or more as head coach of the New England Patriots. His record with New England is 225-79. and To think that five years earlier, five years before he came to New England, he went 37-45 and with the Cleveland Browns and was fired. Art Modell chose not to take him with them to Baltimore because Belichick was not a winner in Cleveland. He had one playoff victory during his five years at the helm of the Browns, ironically, came against the New England Patriots. The Oakland Raiders. Their greatest coach of all time was John Madden. He went 12-1-1 in his first season as head coach. He was just 33 years old, and he never stopped. He posted five double-digit win seasons, even though the league played a 14-game regular season schedule, not 16 as they do right now. But for the first nine years of Madden's tenure, the league played 14 regular season games. Madden still posted 10 wins or more in five of those nine years. He went on to win two Super Bowls, then became an iconic broadcaster. And while Madden retired from the booth in 2008, the video game legacy still rings true. Madden's name is synonymous with the NFL video game. The Los Angeles Rams. I tell you what, let's be honest, it's going to be Sean McVay. We are not far off from the answer to this question being Sean McVay. He went 26-10 in his first two years with a Super Bowl appearance and a Coach of the Year award. Yet, since he's only been there two years, I'm reluctant to give it to him. He'll probably do enough this year that if we come back here 365 days from now, I'll say McVay is the greatest coach in Rams history. Yet, it's still a little bit too much of a small sample size for me, so let's dig a little deeper. If George Knox didn't attempt to come back in 1992, he might be in consideration for this. If we were talking just greatest coach in Rams history, not greatest head coach specifically, but greatest coach in Rams history... I'd say it'd probably be Mike Martz. He was the engineer of the greatest show on turf, offensive coordinator when they won the Super Bowl in 2000, and as head coach, he posted a 624 win percentage. But I tell you what, despite all that, I'm going to go with Dick Vermeil. 
Vermeil went 25-26 and 26 with the Rams, but I give him the distinction because he was a winner everywhere he went. It's not just because of Mike Martz that they won that Super Bowl. That Super Bowl, by the way, being the only championship in Rams history. I don't think it's fair to say that Mike Martz was the reason the Rams won that Super Bowl. Dick Vermeil's a good enough coach. He had a hand in it, and his body of work throughout his entire NFL career shows it. When he coached Kansas City and Philadelphia along with the Rams, he took over teams that all had losing records, and he brought them to the playoffs within three years or less. All of them. The guy can coach. Mike Martz certainly helped, but I'm going to say Dick Vermeil for what he accomplished in the year 2000, with honorable mention to the rest of his body of work in the NFL, he is the greatest coach in Rams history. The Baltimore Ravens. They're another team whose current coach is their greatest ever. John Harbaugh. Since the team relocated to Baltimore in 1996, only three men have ever held the distinction as Baltimore Ravens head coach. Ted Marchabrata was the first one. He went 16-31-1 in three years. Then it was Brian Billick. I tell you what, I really could have put Brian Billick up here, very easily so. He went 80-64 and with Baltimore, including a 5-3 and mark in the postseason. Just four years after setting up shop in Baltimore, Billick made his team champions. They thrashed the New York Giants 34-7 in Super Bowl 35. That gave the franchise their first title ever, less than five years after setting up in their new city. However, what John Harbaugh has done has been even more impressive. His career record is 104 and 72 with the Ravens, including a 10 and 6 mark in the playoffs. Plus, he won a Super Bowl II, Super Bowl 47 over his brother in San Francisco. But despite all that, this might be the biggest tiebreaker for me. This might be what puts Harbaugh over the edge. Harbaugh has finished with double-digit wins six times in his 11 years. Plus, he's only had one losing season during that time. Billick had three losing seasons in nine years. So one losing season in 11 years. Three and nine. That for me is the tiebreaker. That for me is what says John Harbaugh. The Washington Redskins. Their greatest coach ever was Joe Gibbs. He had two different stints with the Skins, 1981 to 1992, and then again in 2004 to 2007. Gibbs went 124 and 60 during his first stint with the franchise, and they won their first ever Super Bowl in Gibbs' second year at the helm. The following year, they got off to a red-hot 8-1 start, but a strike ended the season prematurely. However, that didn't stop Washington as they came back to the Super Bowl the following year before falling to the Oakland Raiders. Gibbs went on to win two more Super Bowls. Remarkably, he did it with three different starting quarterbacks. That's right, all three titles that Gibbs coached the Redskins to... He did it with three different quarterbacks, Joe Theismann, Doug Williams, and Mark Ripien. The New Orleans Saints, their greatest coach ever is another current, Sean Payton. They were founded in 1967. New Orleans' first winning season didn't come until 1986 under Jim Mora. Mora left in 1996 after giving the Saints 10 pretty good years, but then the franchise went through another dry spell. Peyton arrived in 2006, and since then he's gone 118-74. and He is the only New Orleans coach besides Mora to finish with a winning record. Oh, and by the way, he brought them a Super Bowl, Super Bowl 44. They took down the Indianapolis Colts. Continuing on through our list, the Seattle Seahawks, I nominate Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll has gone 89-54-1 and with the Seahawks. His 89 wins are the most in franchise history. He is 9-6 and in the postseason with two Super Bowl appearances, which included the first title in Seahawks history. Should have had two of them. I know the goal line fade, everybody hates that, what happened in Super Bowl 49. 
He should have two Super Bowl rings, but he gave Seattle their first. That's more impressive than what I've seen from any of his predecessors. If it weren't for Pete Carroll, I'd probably give the distinction to Mike Holmgren. The Pittsburgh Steelers. Chuck Noll is their nominee. Noll coached Pittsburgh through four different decades, and he won 193 games, which is a franchise record. He also won four Super Bowls, and he changed the culture around Pittsburgh football. He brought a winning attitude to Pittsburgh after several decades of mediocrity. Pittsburgh became the gold standard when he showed up. Chuck Noll did more than just bring home championships. Chuck Noll made Pittsburgh what they are today, one of the most consistent football franchises that we have. The Houston Texans. Bill O'Brien, another current guy, and this one was maybe the easiest one I had to do in this list. There are four coaches in Houston Texans history. O'Brien is the only one with a winning record. Dom Capers went 18-46. and 46. He never finished better than 7-9 and nine as head coach at Houston. It's not going to be him. Gary Kubiak won 22 games in two seasons, but he started 2013-2-11 and was fired. Wade Phillips was the interim head coach, and he went 0-3. Then they hired Bill O'Brien. O'Brien got the Texans' attention after what he did at Penn State. He turned around a program that was sinking in the wake of the Jerry Sandusky scandal. He got them back to relevancy, got them back on their feet, and the Texans said that they wanted some of that. Since then, he's gone 42-38 and with Houston. He had three straight 9-7 and seasons, but his starting quarterbacks were Ryan Fitzpatrick, Brian Hoyer, Tom Savage, T.J. Yates, Case Keenum, Ryan Mallett, Brock Eisweiler, and he even got one start, of Brandon Whedon, but then he found his guy, Deshaun Watson, and then things started turning around for Houston. And I truly believe if they had Will Fuller for all of last season, if he didn't get hurt in like week five or whenever he did, that Houston would have been the two seed last year. They struggled in the playoffs. They have become that team that is going to be knocking on the door, waiting to do something special every year. But now it's got to translate to postseason success. That is the next step forward for O'Brien and the Texans, but still pretty easy to decide who is their greatest coach of all time. The Tennessee Titans, oh, this might sound weird, but Jeff Fisher was once a really good NFL head coach. He was the franchise's coach when they made their transition from the Houston Oilers to Nashville and became the Tennessee Titans. He was a former defensive player, and Fisher made the Titans into one of the premier defensive powers in the NFL. That was complemented by Steve McNair at the quarterback position. And together, they made their run to the Super Bowl in 1999, coming up one yard short against the L.A. Rams. Finally, the last team on our list, the Minnesota Vikings. There were two guys that I debated who I should pick. I gave Dennis Green serious consideration. He always had good defensive teams in Minnesota, and he had just one losing season in 10 years at the helm of the Vikings. Yet despite all that, Bud Grant is the choice for me. He instilled a disciplinary program, everything from smoking to drinking to standing for the national anthem. It was practiced, rehearsed, and beaten into your head. And if you didn't follow it, it didn't matter how good you are, who you were, what you were doing, you were in trouble. You were probably out. It may not have made him popular amongst the players, but it panned out from a coaching standpoint. He went 158-96-5 with an NFL championship and three NFC titles as head coach of the Minnesota Vikings. For me, that's what makes him the greatest coach in Vikings history. 
I tell you what, that is our list, and that is our show. I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. And a reminder that if you missed any part of our list, greatest head coach in the history of all 32 NFL franchises, you can check it out on demand. You can do so on our website or with our free mobile app. Just look up ESPN-UP. I'm going to be back on tomorrow. As always, it's my hope that you join me for Eastern 3 Central. Hoops out. See you then. Thanks for listening to ESPN-UP.